Showtime. Welcome to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland. As I drove in tonight, it looks like we're going to get a thunderstorm. A little bit of lightning happening. Now, speaking of electricity, when one thinks of electricity, one automatically thinks of Thomas Edison. When one thinks of radio, of course, Marconi leaps to mind. But there's one name that has, until now anyways, gone somewhat unforgotten. Nikola Tesla. In fact, it is due to Tesla's work that we now have electricity all over the world. For in fact, he is the inventor of AC, alternate current, not air conditioning, folks. The fact you're listening to this radio show right now is another invention of Tesla's, high-frequency radio waves. But why is history chosen to marginalize him? Could it be that some of the technological revolutions he created are so threatening to the world as we know it that they are designated top secret by national security? Technology so secret that the government denies they even exist. Rumors have been afoot for decades about Tesla's ability to manipulate frequencies in the atmosphere to affect weather patterns. Today's top secret HARP, or High Frequency Active Oral Research Program, located, by the way, in a remote area of Alaska, is said to be based directly from Tesla's research. Is there a link to our changing weather patterns due to HARP's unbridled use of this technology that has simply gotten out of control? Wartime history is flooded with rumors about Tesla's death ray particle beam weapon. In fact, Britain and Yugoslavia are reported to have been in the process of purchasing the weapon when the Second World War came to an end. It's also reported that the Star Wars program of the Reagan era is directly linked to Tesla's papers. Even more explosive details pour in that Tesla was in contact, are you ready for this, folks, with extraterrestrial beings. And that was indeed confessed by Tesla himself. Tonight on Night Fright, we look at the life and times of Nikola Tesla. Tonight on Night Fright, we reveal the technology behind creations of Nikola Tesla. Tonight on Night Fright, screenwriter and researcher Lisa Pease returns to reveal the hidden secrets of Nikola Tesla. Get ready, folks, for one hell of an explosive ride. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome. To Night Fright, your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. And good evening, everyone. 
everybody. Welcome to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland, and on the phone live from Los Angeles, I'd like to welcome back screenwriter, researcher, Lisa Pease. Hey, Lisa, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Staying cool today in this hot L.A. weather. Okay. Be here up and down. I'll have you know, here in Sudbury, the great white north, <laughs> it is indeed spring, and we hit... I think it was 22 or 20. Oh, I should tell you, you're going to laugh, 22 or 23 degrees. It's Celsius. Yes, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, mid-70s. Oh, that's nice, very nice. Oh. So it's not so bad at all. I'm sitting here in the, I'm dying in this, uh, in the studio tonight because it's so hot with all the all the gear on and everything. So I'm sitting in shorts and a t-shirt. Yeah, don't get a visual if you're, you know, it's radio, folks. <laughs> Lisa, maybe to start us off, to talk a little bit about Nikola Tesla. Now, for those of the folks that are listening right now, they're unsure why he's important in our everyday lives. Could you just give a little bit of a brief background, a little bit of an overview about Nikola? Yeah, well, he came to America as a Serbian immigrant, and he initially worked for Thomas Edison. You know, he he had this great idea for how to harness alternating current. People who had been studying electricity up to that time, they knew that the current alternated, but they couldn't figure out a way to capture it. Imagine... Mm -hmm. You know, if you have like a piece of wire and the current runs one way through it and then turns around and runs the opposite direction, how do you get a motor to continue in one direction? How do you exactly. keep the motor from flipping forward and then backward and then forward? Mm. That wouldn't power anything. Tesla had come up with a way in his mind to do it, and he'd built a small prototype in Europe before he came to America. But when he came to America, he found out that not only was Edison this big-time inventor, but that Edison also kind of had a lock on all the scientific minds and what Edison said everybody else believed. And Edison had been busy telling everybody in America that direct current was the way to go. And direct current just means you capture the energy only when it's flowing in the direction you want it to. And they had machines that were built specially to do just that. The problem with direct current is that because you're capturing less of the energy than is available, it's not very powerful. As Edison's counter to that was, but because it's not very powerful, it's very safe and no one will ever die from it. Edison was doing this because he thought all chain current was frankly too dangerous to even play with. So he wasn't even interested in trying to make a motor for it. And Edison's plan would have required a power station every mile across the country. <laughs> Try and picture if you that. you can folks. imagine. I mean, people like J.P. Morgan had their own direct current plant in their basement, and one time it actually caught fire and blew up in his basement. So, you know, right? as far yeah. as Edison's argument that it was safer, uh, he was kind of direct proof that it wasn't. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, there's stories. Mm -hmm. uh, you can validate them for me when I was doing research for <laughs> Or not. <laughs> or not. No, that's just crap, Holland. Forget it. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> there are stories where Edison, to prove the fact that he felt that AC current was so dangerous, he would publicly take animals, and I've seen a video of an elephant, and electrocute right. the elephant. Right. And dogs yeah, started and with dogs, and yeah. people said, well, that's too far away from a human. You know, a dog's a small animal. So then he brought in a horse. People were like, wow, well, that's impressive, but that's still not a human. So then Edison and J.P. Morgan, his financial backer, convinced the state of New York to start executing the death penalty instead of using hanging by using an electric chair. And Edison mm -hmm. bought, through agents, secondhand, a Westinghouse alternating current motor built with Tesla's patents, which, you know, we'll come back to that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But basically, Edison bought 
one of Tesla's motors and attached it and then said the person could be Westinghouse or killed by that method. And what's really interesting about this is that Edison was vehemently opposed to the death penalty. But once it was in place anyway, he's like, well, if they're going to kill somebody, he, to his credit, I think, because mm-hmm. <laughs> there are two ways to look at this. One is that he's really much more incredibly cynical than anybody ever knew, or let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Edison thought it would be a more painless way to die. If you electrocute somebody, he thought they would die very quickly. Now, of course, what happened is when they did the first public electrocution, it didn't happen quickly at all. And in fact, the guy didn't die when they first turned down the current. He just started foaming at the mouth and mm-hmm. cutting his finger right through his hand and, you know, and the stench of his burning flesh. It was this horrific experience. And people had gathered around. People had flooded into Buffalo, New York. And there was a reason Buffalo was the site, too, because there was a huge battle going on for who would get the power contract for Niagara Falls. Yes. And we'll, again, we'll come back to that. But mm-hmm. Buffalo is the nearest big city to Niagara Falls. Edison was trying to make his demonstration of how dangerous the alternating current was right there where the Niagara people could see it. And people had come from all over New York State. They would come by train and were lining the platform. They were outside the prison when this happened and everybody was really kind of sickened. So it kind of backfired on Edison because it was really hard to kill a person with alternating current. So for all his efforts, it actually ended up validating alternating current was safer than they thought. And Tesla, for his part, he took the opposite approach. He decided to electrocute himself publicly because <laughs> he realized it wasn't the fact that it was alternating current, nor was it the voltage per se. It was the amperage. If you can imagine those sine waves, you know, the squiggly lines that go up and down over a horizontal bar on a graph, the bigger the range there, the more damage. So the slower the wave, the more damage. The higher the frequency, the less damage. Because light is kind of like electromagnetic force, and it comes right through our body all the time. You know, when you're out in the sun, there's like little rays going right through you, but no, if they're coming right. in at mm-hmm. such a high frequency, it's not bothering you too much. You know, we get the skin damage if we're not careful. Tesla made that connection and realized if he could electrocute himself with a high enough amperage, he would be okay. Now, to my knowledge, no one else ever dared try this experiment <laughs> on themselves. <laughs> but when he did it, he would stand on a platform in cork sold shoes and literally sparks would fly from every point of his body and when he turned the electricity off and stepped off the stage he would still be sparking and if he shook people's hands they would feel a little jolt you know? a little jolt and stuff <laughs> yeah. there's some great pictures folks on the internet if you do a google on tesla nikola with a k tesla mm-hmm with electricity emanating from the top of his head and all kinds of great photos like that as a matter of fact he used to have mark twain over to his laboratory yeah. Right, yeah, Mark Twain was one of his friends. He was friends with pretty much anybody of note in that era. He was very much part of New York's high society. He was a good friend of John Jacob Astor. He was friendly with Vanderbilt, Mm -hmm. you you name it. And Sanford White, who was one of the famous architects, I think he designed Trinity Church, or was it? I forget, one of the major structures in New York City he's very famous for, and Tesla later hired him to build his own laboratory out in Wardenclyffe, which again we'll come back to. Absolutely, yeah. Right. But essentially, Tesla made possible electricity on a widespread scale by inventing this little alternating current motor. 
And it was kind of funny because he had to leave Edison's employee to do it. He tried to talk Edison into doing it, and Edison could have made a fortune on it if he had listened to Tesla, but he refused. He said, no, 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 you're wrong. What do you know? You're a little Serbian from another mm-hmm. country, and I'm the big genius here, you know. And Tesla eventually got frustrated working for Edison. They had a falling out because at one point Tesla said he could improve Edison's motors, even if he wanted to use direct current. Tesla said, I could still make them much more efficient. And Edison had said to him, well, if you can, there's $25,000 in it for you. Now, Tesla thought that was a promise of pay. Edison made it sound more like a figure of speech. <laughs> like, like, I bet you can't, basically. You know, I'll bet you $25,000 you can't. So Tesla improves it and then goes to collect his money. And Edison's like, what are you talking about? I was just joking. And this is actually the second time that this has happened to Tesla because he worked for the Edison affiliate in Paris before he came to America. Mm-hmm. And similarly there, he had been asked to go fix a power plant in Germany and he'd taken the train out and spent a lot of his own money buying parts and got it all working just fine. But when he got back, they said, well, you spent too much in expenses, so we're not going to give you the bonus that we promised. <laughs> and so this is like the second time that he felt he had been promised money that never materialized. So he quit Edison for good. And, and at that point, some investors approached Tesla. You know, they knew him. And Tesla was very good at various things. And at first, they wanted to just make arc lights with him, which wasn't what Tesla wanted. He wanted to get into his alternating current machine. But they said, look, we'll set up a company. We'll use your name. You'll have all the freedom you want. And by the way, we'll pay you in stock. And Tesla, being naive to the ways of the world, thought that sounded like a marvelous idea. He was certain his inventions would make him a lot of money. But he didn't realize that he didn't have the majority ownership of the stock that the other investors did. And they eventually took his name and forced him out. And so there was a period in his life where Tesla was actually completely penniless and he had to literally dig ditches to survive. And here was a guy who, as a kid, had almost died for the chance to go to engineering school. His father had told him, no, 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 you can't be an engineer. You have to be a soldier or a priest. Those are the only two options. And he goes, and I know you aren't going to be able to kill people. Therefore, you better be a priest. Mm. We really can't afford to send you to school. And at one point, Tesla was, he was a sickly child as it was, but one time he was truly near death. And his father to encourage his recovery, basically said, look, if you get well, I will send you to engineering school. And that was kind of a turning point. Tesla didn't attribute it to that directly. He did get some good medicine at that point in time, but he said it would definitely give him something to look forward to. And we all know the power of positive <laughs> thinking. Thinking, yeah, that's right. That's what he lived for. He'd spent his whole childhood trying to get into engineering school to do this, and now after going to college and getting that, he's stuck digging ditches. It's like, what did he need the college education for? <laughs> it was a very dark period of his mm-hmm. life and after that period passed he never wanted to talk about it to anyone again but at the, his foreman who saw him working in the ditches and saw that he seemed particularly industrious and smart and like he didn't quite belong there got to know him a bit and had him over for dinner and realized this guy had a lot of really interesting ideas and the foreman had some friends who were people with money and he got them together and they set Tesla up with a new enterprise but this one where Tesla actually had some control and so with the seed money and the control he set about building his alternating current motor and he tried to patent it as one piece and the patent office rejected it and said, this is too complex. You're going to have to break it up into several patents. So the next thing you know, he gets seven patents in a row. Now, people who aren't inventors don't realize it's kind of hard to get a patent. You have to be completely original and do something that no one else in the world has done before. And so if somebody gets one in their lifetime, that's really huge. For Tesla to get seven in a month, 
is really huge. So naturally, the New York Electrical Society, you know, word got out really quickly. Some guy is filing all these patents. What is it? I think it was Columbia University got together and said, you know, let's have Tesla come speak to the Society of American Engineers and explain what he's building. <laughs> and, and Tesla kind of didn't want to because he felt having to talk about it was going to slow him down and he wanted to hurry up and finish. But everybody was insistent and he knew he could use the publicity in the end. So he put a little talk and a demonstration together and it just took the Electrical Society by storm. I mean, people were so amazed. He had solved what all of them had thought was an impossible problem, building a small, efficient motor to capture alternating current such that it could be made into a commercial piece. Mm -hmm. He demonstrated not just that. He showed that you could generate a field of electricity. He would hold up light bulbs that would light without being attached to any wires. I mean, it was just like magic to people who don't understand what's going on. It's not all that magic when you understand the science, but he was a bit of a showman. You know, he liked to kind of throw in the spectacular, if you will. And so the people were just blown away and word quickly got to George Westinghouse who was already investing in alternating current. He had already siphoned off whatever patents he could find. So he goes to Tesla and he says, I'm very impressed. I want to buy your patents. There's several reports that he bought them for a million dollars, but they all seem to come back to one assertion of Tesla as reported by a second party who was known to exaggerate. So <laughs> I don't know if it was a million dollars, but there was definitely Definitely 60000 which at that time was certainly equivalent to a million dollars in our money. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and this so, is the turn of the century, folks. Exactly. This is, you know, late 1800s. So That's 60, right. Yeah. at that point in time is just huge. And more importantly, Westinghouse offered him $2.50 for yeah. each horsepower generated. I mean, to this day, I'm not sure I pay that much in my electrical bills. <laughs> I know, could <laughs> so you imagine? quite a lot. <laughs> That is quite a lot of money, and uh, that would come back to haunt him in a bit, and I'll come back to, That's but, right, yeah. you know, Tesla was at that point kind of on top of the world, plus he and Westinghouse really got along. They really liked each other, whereas he and Edison were so different. Edison was not a very scientific man. Edison loved to truly experiment. Tesla made some joke like, you know, if you wanted him to find a needle in a haystack or whatever, he would literally pull out every piece of hay till he found the needle. <laughs> whereas, you know, Tesla would probably calculate the mathematical probability of it being in one part of the stack versus another. Because <laughs> Tesla was very classically trained. I mean, he did not pull this stuff out of his head or imagination, he knew his math very well, and he figured things out mathematically, whereas, like I said, Edison had the training in the math, but he didn't like to work that way. <laughs> He'd rather just stumble around until he found something, because that was fun for him, and it used to drive Tesla up the wall, because he's like, he could save so much time if he just did the math first. <laughs> Lisa, was he a genius, in your opinion? He was absolutely a genius, and part of that actually I attribute to his upbringing, meaning I'm not sure how much of genius is learned and how much is genetic, meaning... Mm. When he was little, his father would give him all kinds of mental exercises. And again, this is just a different culture, so I don't mm -hmm. know if this was unique to his family or if this was common in that era. But his father would give him ever longer sentences to memorize and repeat back to him. He would do mental games with him where the father would have a, like a little deck of cards with symbols on them, and he would hold them up so that Tesla couldn't see it, but the father could. And he'd have Tesla guess what the symbol on the card was. It was like he was going through ESP training, ESP, if you yeah. will. And remember, ESP does stand for extrasensory perception. It's not something necessarily magical, since all our thoughts are essentially electrical signals. It's, mm -hmm. to me, it, it makes total sense if some people can read those signals better than others. It's not woo-woo-woo 
crazy stuff. Oh, no, absolutely not. we don't not. understand, yeah. you know, because we haven't studied it the way we've studied other scientific phenomena. Actually, a good example of that, folks, would be everybody's gone through this. You're thinking of someone, and all of a sudden the phone rings. Bingo. Yes. There they are. <laughs> Yeah, we, yeah, we pick up those signals somehow before they arrive. So I, I do attribute part of his genius to that kind of training. Mm. But Tesla was different. He was an obsessive compulsive, and that had its good points and its bad points. The bad points were if he started to do like a physical task, sometimes he would have to continue it in sequences of three until he felt okay. Like if he walked around the block, he'd actually have to circle the block three times before he could go in the door. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not a very efficient way to live. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, at one point when he was a child, he picked up a book of Voltaire and he felt compelled to read every single thing Voltaire had ever written. Now, when he started this compulsion, of course, he had no idea how much <laughs> Voltaire had written. <laughs> He'd written something like 180 volumes. I mean, it was just outrageous. <laughs> and Tesla later cursed. It's like, this man must have lived on coffee alone <laughs> to have written so much in so short a time. Should have picked but, up a Batman magazine. Yeah, uh, and, and it was kind of sad, too, because in school, Tesla was so obsessive about doing his homework and doing it well that when he went home, his father father did not even praise him and said, you're working too hard and you really need to rest. What Tesla didn't learn until years later was that his teachers had told his father, if Tesla keeps up this pace, he's literally going to kill himself and you got to talk him down. But the father didn't want to tell Tesla that. So Tesla thought his father wasn't proud of him and he was very hurt by that. Mm. You know, cause He was working so hard in part to impress his father, like, see, it was a good thing you sent me to school. So, you know, totally mixed signals and later in life he found out what it really happened. Lisa, I'm going to do a station break, but when we come back, I want to tackle one of the rumors that I mentioned before, and that one is going to be HARP. I want to talk about HARP and how Tesla is rumored to have been able to manipulate the high frequencies in the atmosphere and how HARP has taken that technology to manipulate the weather. We'll find out if so that is told. true. Or so we're told. <laughs> or so we're told. So we'll come back in just a second. Folks, if you're just joining us, Lisa Pease is here, and we're talking about Nikola Tesla. It's a fascinating, fascinating subject. Nikola Tesla was the inventor of AC alternate current, and he's the reason why we don't have a power plant every mile across the country, across North America or the world. It's due specifically to his invention. Lisa is a screenwriter. She has written a screenplay as a feature film on Nikola Tesla. You also will remember Lisa Pease is an incredible researcher and a great writer. She has a book called The Assassinations, which can be got at Amazon.ca or Amazon.com. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. You folks, you are listening to CKLU 96.7 FM, Laurentian University, Sudbury. And it's beautiful in Sudbury today. And I can hardly wait for a few more days like this to go by. And then I may even chance going in the lake. Eh, I don't think so. Wednesdays from 3 to 5 in the afternoon and from 10 to midnight at night. And you're listening to Cape Breton Radio, Cape Breton University, Sydney, Nova Scotia. Wednesdays from 3.30 in the afternoon to 5.30 in the afternoon. CILU 102.7 FM, Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Sunday nights at midnight, CJMQ 88.9 FM, the voice of the eastern townships in Sherbrooke, Quebec, and you can listen every Saturday between 9 and 11 in the evening, CJUM 101.5 FM, University of Manitoba, 
Winnipeg, Manitoba, Wednesday nights, Thursday mornings, 1 a.m. Sound FM 100.3 FM, University of Waterloo, Waterloo, Ontario, Sunday night, Monday morning, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., three shows back-to-back. CKXU 88.3 FM, the University of Lethbridge in Lethbridge, Alberta, and that's Friday nights at midnight. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. And we're back with Lisa Pease. We're talking about Nikola Tesla. And before the break, I had mentioned that Nikola Tesla is reported to have been able to manipulate the high frequencies in the atmosphere. And we bring it forward to a organization called HARP. And HARP stands for High Frequency Active Oral Research Program. And they have an installation in a remote area of Alaska, and it's reported. Now, these are all rumors, folks, and we will find out how factual the rumors are in just a few seconds, that they're able to manipulate the weather. Now, my question to Lisa is, is that why our winter was so long this year? (laughs) Are they pissed off at Canada? (laughs) Oh, my. Well, first of all, I've got to say that anybody who talks about what HARP is, there's so much disinformation about it. I truly don't pretend to know for sure. I've read, I've got Nick Baggage's book on HARP, Angels Don't Play This HARP. It's a very interesting book. Hmm. But I've heard all different kinds of things. My parents actually were up in Alaska at one point, and they were near the HARP facility, and they were talking to the locals there. And the locals all seemed to think it had something to do with protecting them from UFOs, which sounds like a very useful cover story. I'm pretty sure that's not what it does. But it's the kind of thing where when somebody's putting out disinformation, Mm -hmm. it's it's very hard to find out what it really does do. Others have said it's for sonar communication with submarines around the world. Oh, I haven't heard that uh, one. Pardon? I didn't hear that one. That's Yeah, I've heard that. Others have speculated that it has to do with a missile shield. I mean, there are so many things that it could be doing, all of which could be true, and I really don't know which one it is. I would say it's certainly possible it was inspired, because Tesla, I'll talk about what Tesla did, because I know for sure about what that was, but I don't, I really can't say with any authority, and in fact, I would definitely question uh, accounts that HARP is based on Tesla technology. Maybe it is, but maybe it isn't. Mm. Um, but what Tesla did is at one point he had left New York where he's been, you know, much of his life. Somebody had promised him free energy, which I think is pretty hilarious, uh, meaning he wouldn't have to pay for it <laughs> if he went to Colorado. Um, he knew some guy who knew the owner of the local power station and said, look, if you want to set up there, you can have all the energy you want. And Tesla's like, wow, what a deal. Plus, they told him there are spectacular lightning shows out in Colorado, and there are. If you've ever been there, it's really one of the best places to see lightning probably on the planet. So he set up a lab on Pikes Peak, not at the top, but on the way up, if you will. And he started doing research, and he was building what he called an oscillator, which is interesting, because I think of an oscillator as something that vibrates. And what he was doing is he Mm -hmm. was amplifying the energy, essentially, to increase the frequency. And the nearest analogy I can make that people might understand is if you've ever hit a tuning fork and held it near a stringed instrument, the string that has the note that's the same as that tuning fork will start to vibrate. That's right. You know, Mm -hmm. things that vibrate at the same frequency tend to amplify each other. Do you play an instrument, Lisa? I used to 
play both violin and harp. So I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was better at the harp, but and it was only spelled with one A. Yeah. That's funny. Anyway, <laughs> that was many years ago. Okay, we'll talk about that later then. Yeah, but okay. uh, he found that energy also does that, that you can get energy things to vibrate at certain mm-hmm. cycles. And he was trying to find out, for example, the conductive vibration frequency of the Earth and determined, I forget if it was 40 or 60 cycles, but somewhere around there. And he did experiments where he would literally kind of pump energy into the earth and then he'd try and measure the return to see how far the energy got before it dissipated. Lisa, I think it was 8 hertz. I think it was higher, but I would again, I would have to look. So. Okay. And and whatever you find on the internet, I wouldn't believe it. So. Okay, well, forget it, folks. <laughs> yeah, like. No, this was a PBS special I watched actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, who knows where they <laughs> got there? Yeah, yeah. Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it may have been eight hertz. I truly don't remember, but okay, I, it, it I could have been it twenty. For some reason, I thought it ended with zero, but we'll see. Who knows? Um, and it doesn't matter. I'm not a scientist. I can't build anything to that specification anyway. <laughs> uh, but what Tesla came to believe, and again, I don't know if this is true or not, but he came to believe that the Earth actually had standing waves in it, kind of paths that an electrical signal could follow, That's such right. that mm-hmm. energy, when we talk about wireless today, we talk about sending information through the air. Yes. When Tesla talked about wireless, his goal was not to send information through the air. His goal was to send actual energy through the air. Mm-hmm. And when he stumbled upon radio, as he did, to him it was only a precursor to actually sending energy, whereas other people were so happy to just send a voice signal that they were ecstatic and stopped there. But Tesla was obsessed with trying to send energy. And you can't send energy through nothing. You have to send energy through something. So he tried bouncing it through the earth and had what he considered some success with that. And I'll come back to that in a second. He also tried bouncing it through the upper atmosphere and they had some success with that. And that's the part that may be more related to harp than the other. He had sent out a signal and he thought that the energy literally went all the way around the crust of the earth and back to him. And I have no way of knowing, again, if that's what happened or not. Maybe it went down to the core and bounced back. Maybe it went a mile and bounced back. I, I Again, I wouldn't know mm-hmm. what he saw, and I can't read his science. All I know is that no one has duplicated what he thought he did, or if they have, they haven't told us. He had extremely finely tuned senses. He actually had a disease at one point where he said, you know, when a fly would land, it he could hear the thud of the fly landing and he could hear a fire engine miles away mm-hmm. and when he was out in Colorado there would be a lightning storm and he would feel the power of the blast long before you actually saw or heard the lightning mm-hmm. which is pretty interesting yeah. so he was himself sensitive to that and he tried to build a machine that would pick up and register those signals and that's how he could tell if energy was coming or going one of the other things he did there that was kind of fictionalized for the movie The Prestige is he did find a way to send energy out far enough to light some bulbs in the snow. Now, in the movie, they make it look like it's miles from his lab. Of course, that's not how it really happened. Uh, It was like 25 yards from his lab. And again, what he wasn't really projecting the energy in a beam, so to speak. It was more like he was sending so much energy out in all directions that it was enough for the light bulbs to pick it up from their metal conductor, which was attached to the ground. It could very well be the energy was going right through the ground to the bulbs. So we don't know quite how it worked but he was able to light those bulbs without wires. It was not magic, and it was not miles away. 
Mm. And there are like different authors dispute, you know, how far away it was. You know, one person said he lit up a bank at 20 miles. I've never seen that in any other source, but that one author is, I think, again, it was an author that was prone to exaggeration. There was one young guy who really a fan, a fanboy, if you will, of Tesla, <laughs> and wrote this kind of glowing book, you know, where Tesla could do no wrong and Tesla was a gift from God and all this kind of stuff. And unfortunately, mm. that was kind of the first official biography of Tesla. So a lot of people had quoted him unquestioningly until years later, a woman named Margaret Chesney came along and questioned everything and did a lot of homework and got a lot of it right. But even she had her limits. She didn't have the internet, for example, and she said she couldn't tell from anything she had read if Tesla had ever succeeded in lighting the lamps remotely. I went and read Tesla's Colorado diary, and it's very clear in there, and there are even pictures of hmm. what it looked like. And it, you know, it's clear that he did that, and Tesla did also talk about it in a New York Times article I found later. I do know that he did succeed, but on a very, very limited scale. The other thing I want to point out, because mm-hmm. we'll see this sooner or later, there's a famous picture of Tesla sitting in front of this machine that's throwing out these huge, what they call them, streamers of electricity. And that is a double exposure. If there's a machine like that and it's throwing out electricity like that, you would not sit in the room with it or you would be fried to death. You know? <laughs> so uh, I want to encourage people that was a double exposure. And uh, he made no bones about it. He never tried to pretend that. But, you know, years later, people thought, he again, he was some sort of a magical guy because mm-hmm. he could be in the presence of all that electricity and not be harmed by it. And no, he would have been harmed by it. Big time. <laughs> Photographed separately. Let's talk uh, about Niagara Falls. Yeah. You alluded yeah. to it before. When Tesla was a kid, he had seen a photo of Niagara Falls, and right away, his mind started whirling, and he had water wheels in his neighborhood, and so his first thought was, wow, he could put a big, huge water wheel in Niagara Falls, and that would generate motive power, and you could run a train across Niagara Falls. You know, you could just mm-hmm. do things with a water wheel. Of course, that was as a kid. As he got older, he realized that could be used to turn a generator to generate electricity. But right from the start, when he saw that photo, it became like his obsession that he wanted to be the one to get the power from Niagara Falls. And he was very focused on that. And when he came to America, at that time, an international commission was forming, led by Lord Kelvin in England, trying to find the best possible solution because he kind of only get one shot at it. It's not like you can build competing power stations in Niagara Falls. So they really wanted to do it right. And what was kind of funny about it at first, and this is such a quintessentially American story, <laughs> the Niagara Commission was mostly a bunch of rich New York businessmen. Uh. And what they wanted was for somebody to submit the brilliant idea, and then they would build it themselves. So they weren't about to go share the profits with whoever had the brilliant idea. They just wanted the brilliant idea. Uh So they set up this contest, and they offered, I think, maybe $300,000, which sounds, again, that sounds like a lot of money. I mean, if you're a screenwriter and somebody has a contest of the path is $300,000, even now, Mm -hmm. that sounds like a lot. Mm -hmm. Or a musician. Right. But to Westinghouse, Mm -hmm. to Edison, to the the big minds of that time, $300,000 was not that much for what they knew the power would be worth. <laughs> mm. And so they're like, you know, when the commission gets serious and offers real money, then we'll be interested. <laughs> the commission didn't really get any takers on the first round of their contest, so to speak. They realized they were going to have to cut some serious deals and they were going to have to share the wealth and they were going to have to go into business with. At that point, there were really only two choices. It was either going to be the Edison and J.P. Morgan team or the Tesla Westinghouse. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's one of the reasons Edison was trying so hard to ding Westinghouse and to make him look so dangerous and electrocuting animals and people to try and discredit Westinghouse. In the meanwhile, there is a World's Fair coming up. There had just been the World's Fair in Paris, a big, huge World's Fair. And I'm reading a really good book about that by Jill Jonas, by the way, J-O-N-N-E-S. She wrote an interesting book on Tesla and Edison in the period that I'm talking about Mm -hmm. called Empires of Light. But then she went back in time to the World's Fair in Paris, which I think was 1884, 86, uh, I have to double check. At that World's Fair, they had several electrical exhibits, and of course, the Eiffel Tower was built for that World's Fair, and they had lit the entire Eiffel Tower with little lights all the way up the side. It was just spectacular and beautiful. When the World's Fair came to America, it was originally to come on the anniversary of Columbus you know, arriving in America, 1892. They missed that gold date by a year. <laughs> they called it the Columbian <laughs> Exhibition, but it actually didn't go up till 1893. <laughs> but there was this huge competition between, interestingly enough, New York, you know, J.P. Morgan Center, mm-hmm. and, and Chicago, kind of the lesser known, the little upstart city that people in New York looked down their nose at. And New York was pouring a lot of money into their advertising campaign, but Chicago wasn't giving up, and Congress had to decide who to give the fare to. And in the end, Chicago won, and it was a huge kind of upset victory. And they had a competition to find out who would power the World's Fair, who would generate the power, who would build the light, the whole thing, because it was going to be the first entirely electric city in the world. So again, Edison and Tesla were, were vying very hard hard for this. Westinghouse really wanted the Ferris contract. Tesla really wanted it because then he could prove the superiority of alternating current. Edison would do it direct or alternating, whichever the fair wanted. But Edison, again, being teamed with J.P. Morgan, and by then Edison's company had been taken over. It was now called General Electric. There were a bunch of mergers at that time. All the major players except Westinghouse basically went into General Electric. They put in a bid that was pretty high. <laughs> and a little unknown guy, Westinghouse didn't dare bid, because at that point, bankers were breathing down his neck. It's like, you can't afford to top Edison, and you can't afford to undercut him. <laughs> so he didn't bid, but a little local guy in Chicago did. What Westinghouse did is he went to the affairs committee, and he basically said, if you give it to that guy, I will back him, I will work with him, and we will make this work. So it wasn't him kind of putting his neck on the line directly, but indirectly, you know, it pretty much came to be that way. And so the fair went with the bid that was like a quarter of what GE was asking. And so then, of course, Edison and Morgan get really upset. And so what do they do? They slap a lawsuit and say, well, you can't use the light bulb because that's Edison's patent. That's right. And without our bulbs, Mm -hmm. how are you going to light the fair? And Westinghouse basically went out and did the right thing. He invented a better light bulb. <laughs> he invented a two-filament light bulb instead of the one-filament light bulb. And the lawyers all hashed it out in court and decided that Westinghouse definitely was not a violation of Edison's patent. Tesla and Westinghouse basically got the contract for the World's Fair. And it was because of that and the success of their operation there, they ended up winning the contract to Niagara. However, because J.P. Morgan and Edison being as powerful as they were, they kind of split the Niagara contract. What they said is Westinghouse could build the motors using Tesla's patents, but Edison and J.P. Morgan Mm -hmm. could carry the energy away. They'd be responsible for 
building the transformers and piping the energy down to the cities below. So that's where Tesla kind of got really obsessed with his idea of wireless energy. He's like, why are we building wires to conduct this energy? This is so crazy. Wires are a blight on the landscape. At the mm -hmm. time, there are pictures of New York City where it's like a thicket of wires. There was no plan. I mean, people just ran wires willy-nilly, diagonally across streets wherever they needed. It was just ugly as sin. And it was kind of the bane of Tesla's existence. And he knew it wasn't necessary because he knew that lightning came from the cloud to the ground without wires. <laughs> you know, obviously there was some way to conduct electricity without wires. And exactly. that was his obsession. He wanted to find out how to do that. And like I said, he had some limited success with that. And people just in the last couple of years have duplicated that limited success, as I understand it, in I think it was 2006. That was the first year that at the Las Vegas Consumer Electronics Show, they exhibited the first wirelessly powered devices. I didn't when, know that. I didn't know yeah, they, they duplicated thing. it. Yeah, a little thing that will generate a field of electricity and then light the objects around you. And, of course, I want the one that I can take to the coffee shop with me to power my laptop. Tell me about that one. <laughs> I think we me. all want that. Yeah, I want that patent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, again, it's like this technology is certainly possible. It's been replicated. It's just not out there widely on a commercial scale yet. So after Niagara Falls, Tesla goes to Colorado. He has even more success. He comes back to New York. He convinces, finally, J.P. Morgan to invest in him instead of Edison for a change and talks, you know, J.P. Morgan into helping fund the start of what he called Wardenclyffe, this That's huge it. lab he was mm -hmm. building out in New Jersey. Um, I'm going to lament for one minute here. I actually had not only a winning bet on the Derby, I had a winning exacta bet on the Derby, but I chickened out after I made the bet, I'm like, no. I couldn't remember why I picked the eight horse. And I'm like, that horse, the odds are so bad. I'm going to turn that ticket in and get something else. Oh, no. It was a $2,000 mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I really could have used that money. Tell so, me about uh, anyway. it. So, uh, oh, what a so, And now I can bet on the horse, but it won't matter because now everybody's going to bet on that horse. But, uh, I just want to mention, too, I, I looked up the Paris World Fair. Oh, yeah? Thank God for the Internet. Eh? I'm sitting well, here with my laptop. In some ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was talking to you before the show started yeah, about how some of the information on the Internet, even, no matter how widely repeated, that doesn't necessarily make it true. Absolutely. <laughs> but in this case, it's probably true. So what did you find? <laughs> it says that uh, l'exposition universelle of 1899, that's Universal Exposition of 1889, I apologize. 89, yeah, 89. it wouldn't have been yeah. 99. Yeah, yeah it was 89. a World's Fair uh, held in Paris, France from May 6th, and then it stops. And I have to go to the page to look the rest of it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that was the other thing, too. America was really upset because, well, frankly, the whole world was upset when they built the Eiffel Tower. It became the tallest building in the world. And so they wanted something tall and impressive at the Chicago World's Fair. It wasn't going to be as tall as the Eiffel Tower, but what they built was the world's first Ferris wheel. And it was not like the Ferris wheels we see at fairs because it was literally 60 Pullman train car sized cabins. <laughs> These huge things being pulled mm -hmm, up. Each mm -hmm. cabin could hold 60 people standing. So it was pretty amazing. We were out at yeah. Wardenclyffe, right. Yeah. How he got the money from J.P. Morgan, he convinced him, he, Tesla said, and again, remember, this is 1899 at this point. 
you know, before the turn of the century, and he said, imagine a worldwide system of communication. Imagine being able to send a message to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Imagine being able to speak to millions of people at once. In other words, he's talking about radio, television, the Internet. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, he's foreseen all of this, and he had it all integrated as one working system. And, of course, Morgan has seen influence, control, power, right? So he's very happy to invest in this. But what Tesla didn't tell him is that really all he wanted to do was send energy, not information. Tesla really thought you could power planes from the ground. You could project the energy up into the upper atmosphere, and the planes could draw off of that and fly you know, without having to refuel. And who knows? That may still be possible at some point. But that's what Tesla was really building. What happened, of course, is along the way, Marconi sends a radio signal to Europe. It makes all the newspapers, and suddenly Marconi is everything and Tesla is nothing because Marconi just sent the signal that Morgan thought Tesla was preparing to send. And Tesla said, oh, don't worry about Marconi. He's using 17 of my patents. You know, <laughs> I'll get him on that. And he was. And, and, he and was, Tesla yes. had to file suit. It literally went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it wasn't until the year after Tesla's death that the Supreme Court finally ruled that, in fact, Tesla and three other people had predated Marconi in radio, and that Tesla was really the father of radio from his initial inventions. He had done a, something at the St. Louis Fair which is the fair pictured in the Judy Garland movie, uh, Meet Me in St. Louis. It was about that particular fair. Is that right? Yeah, and uh, Tesla had gone to St. Louis, and I don't remember if it was in connection with the fair, but it was around the same time as the fair, and had done an exhibition there where he had kind of demonstrated the rudimentary elements of radio. He hadn't actually broadcast a signal, but he'd broadcast something and had it show up in a tube across the other end of the stage, and all the researchers in later years realized that, yes, that was the first actual transmission of any kind of electrical signal. Um, and so that's why the Supreme Court, in the end, did give him credit over Marconi for that. Isn't that incredible? Um, but, you know, it's not that incredible. I think the mistake is we think that what we learn is kids must be true. And, for example, we all Good learned point. about the Brontosaurus, right? But yes. there is no such thing as a Brontosaurus. They found out they were wrong, and it's really a Pleosaurus, and it didn't have round flat feet. It had web feet, and it swam. It didn't walk on land. <laughs> but wait a second. Fred Flintstone's Dino, isn't he a Brontosaurus? Yeah, but there's no such thing as a Brontosaurus scientifically now, we know. You mean how Barbara likes I grew up with Pluto as a planet, and a couple years ago, Pluto was demoted. It's not a planet anymore. Oh, well, it's not? No. I grew up with it as a so planet, even too. things that you think you know that you you knew for sure aren't necessarily true. So why we have to all engage in lifelong learning and, and nothing is ever known that isn't subject to challenge except maybe certain principles of math. Very <laughs> few things that are really, really solid. So, uh, so if Pluto's not a planet, what is it? Pluto's no longer a planet. It's yeah, a moon it's, or something or just a hunk no, of... No, it's, it's technically an asteroid, but it's, really? a, it's like a recurring asteroid uh -huh. with an orbit, but it's not considered a planet anymore. Yeah. So, poor Pluto. Wow. Who knew? <laughs> 2,000 years of astrology or whatever. So. <laughs> Let's take um, a station break. Okay. And when we come back, I want to look at another one of those anomalies. I want to look at the fact that he claims he received communication from extraterrestrials. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the amazing life of one Nikola Tesla. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Greg Holland.
You're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM, Laurentian University, and we broadcast between 3 and 5 in the afternoons on Wednesdays, and also between 10 and midnight. And I want to say hello to Deborah Frankel, and Deborah Frankel is the general manager here at CKLU, and she has been fantastic tonight, frightened myself personally in terms of support. I can't say enough, and I want to thank her profoundly, because one of the reasons why this show is on the air is directly because of her support. Without it, this show couldn't happen. Caper Radio, Cape Breton University, Sydney, Nova Scotia, God's Country, and that is Wednesdays between 3.30 in the afternoon and 5.30 at night. And if you're listening right now, thank you very much. I want to say hi to Matthew Burke, CILU 102.7 FM, Lakehead University, and rockin' Thunder Bay. Sunday nights at midnight. Thanks for listening, folks. If you're listening and you're up at midnight, you're hearing this show right now. Thank you very much, and uh, hey to Jason Wellwood, CJMQ 88.9 FM, the voice of the Eastern Townships in Sherbrooke, Quebec, and that's every Saturday evening from 9 to 11. David Teasdale, how are you, my friend? Hope things are well with you, and I'll be in Montreal in three weeks. There's a big conference of radio stations every year in Canada. And this year it just happens to be in my hometown of Montreal. So, Mom, if you're listening, I'm coming home. You're listening to CJUM 101.5 FM, University of Manitoba, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Beautiful campus there. Wednesday nights, Thursday mornings, 1 a.m. I want to say hi to Jared McKittyak. Sound FM 100.3 FM, University of Waterloo, Waterloo, Ontario. Sunday night, Monday morning, three shows back to back, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Hey, Road Dog. How you doing, buddy? Summer's here at last. CKXU 88.3 FM, University of Lethbridge, Lethbridge, Alberta. Another great campus. Friday nights at midnight. I want to say hi to my buddy, Alan Gillespie. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. And we are back, and we're speaking with Lisa Pease. Lisa Pease, if you're a regular listener to the show, is a regular on this show. And she has a great book out with Jim Giugino. It's called The Assassination. But tonight, we're talking about a screenplay that she has written about Nikola Tesla. Now, if you've never heard that name, stick around, because this was one amazing inventor. He invented AC alternate current and that's the only reason why we can have electricity right around the world he invented radio and that's the only reason why you can listen to us right now right around the world this man was a visionary a true visionary but there are some rumors and some concepts that have been associated with the name Nikola Tesla some of them have secrecy is attached to them one of them we're going to look at right now is the fact that he claims that he received extraterrestrial communication. And the message said, one, two, three. So we're going to ask Lisa if that is credible or if that is not credible, also known as crap. <laughs> well, this happened when Tesla was doing his experiments in Colorado, and I, I mentioned before he built up this receiver, you know, to be very sensitive to try and pick up the signals, you know, after he was trying to broadcast them through the Earth using the Earth as a conductor. Mm-hmm. Well, his receiver started picking up the signal that 
Tesla felt could only have come from outer space, and it was it was saying one, two, three, you know, just like beep, 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 mm-hmm. beep, beep, beep. Obviously, it wasn't a human voice saying no, one, no. two, three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so Tesla didn't know what to make of it, and you know he thought it's it is very possible and maybe even likely that it came from some intelligence beyond this planet. At that time, I should note that it was not uncommon for people to believe that there were other intelligent civilizations on other planets, particularly Mars. Somebody That's thought they right. had seen canals on Mars. I mean, mm-hmm. it was kind of a little bit in vogue at the time. So it sounds much crazier now than it no, did not in at the all. context uh, of its time. <laughs> no, not at all. Actually, there's many people that uh, believe the mountain range on Mars, Sidonia, is in fact a face. Right, right. Richard Hoagland, who I'm hoping to have on the show later on in August, attests that there may even be bases right. on the moon. So, You know, I'll be curious. But the sad thing was, this was then used to discredit Tesla. And at that point in time, uh, people understand how the world works. If some guy's getting rich and he's getting all the good things are coming his way, everybody else gets jealous. And Tesla's patents were invaluable at that point in time. I mean, he had a complete lock on alternating current motors for, you know, whatever the initial patent period is. I, I think they get 10 or 20 years or same before then it gets opened up to the public. So people were really mad at him and kept trying to steal his patents, and Tesla had, kept having to go to court to defend them, and Tesla would always win. So this was a chance to take Tesla down a few pegs. And so the press just had a field day with this. Tesla's talking to aliens. Tesla's talking to little green men from Mars. They just, you know, completely ridiculed him up one side and down the other for this. And Tesla kind of backpedaled because he's like, well, I didn't say it was men on Mars. I, I don't know what it was, but it does seem like it came from outer space. And later years, researchers had different speculations. Some think maybe he was just picking up the recurring noise of background radiation, which is known to come in in very systematic patterns. Others thought he might have even picked up Marconi's transmittals when he was broadcasting SOS across, you know, the, you know, the mm-hmm. Pacific or whatever. They... You know, there are any number of explanations for what he could have been hearing, and they're not all extraterrestrial. So I just want to be careful that, yes, Tesla did make that unfortunate claim. He didn't stick to it, and he really didn't know what he was saying, nor the impact it would have. I mean, I think he would just cringe in his grave to think 100 years later, people are still saying he talked to aliens when he really had no proof of that. <laughs> and he did tend to be a somewhat careful guy. And in his lifetime, people started saying things like, oh, he's from Venus, he's from another planet, you know. Oh, man. He became a new age symbol he wrote a really amazing article in in a magazine called century magazine mm-hmm. which is appropriate because it was 1900 at the time and uh, he he wrote kind of his vision for the future his good friend robert johnson who was the editor of the magazine had invited him to write about his colorado experiments because tesla was so you know excited about all the scientific advances but tesla took the opportunity to expand on all kinds of things none of which had anything to do with his experiments in colorado and but it was Fascinating enough, and Johnson being such a good friend, he ran it anyway. And it was a very provocative article because it was basically the, the name of the article was called The Problem of Increasing Human Energy. And he talked about, again, 100 years ago, he was talking about we're burning fossil fuels and we're, we're literally burning energy when we should be finding ways to extract energy without burning sources. He said there should be a way to chemically extract the energy from coal without actually burning it. Mm-hmm. You know, he said we shouldn't be cutting down trees for wood. You know, for fuel, we should be using wind power and solar panel, 
power. He even patented what I believe is probably the first solar energy device. It was a very simple little metal panel that charged a battery underground. You know, all it did is it take the heat and the, you know, the rays from the sun and channel it into the battery below. I mean, couldn't have been simpler. And, you know, I don't know how much energy you got out of that battery, but, you know, it seems like, you know, he had all these ideas. He had, in the 30s, in, in the 1930s, he designed a floating geothermal plant for the ocean where you'd create a heat sink between the, the difference between the, the warm upper waters in the ocean and the cold lower regions. You'd kind of pump the warm water down and then it would, you know, rise back up mm-hmm. and in the process it would create electricity. And uh, it's funny because just in the last six months I read an article about somebody talking about building a floating geothermal plant. I'm like, oh, somebody finally found Tesla's old story on that. <laughs> they had all these wonderful dramatic pictures in the New York Times of how it would work. And, uh, you know, so again, very visionary, but also mm-hmm. in this 1900 article, he, he mentioned that crystals, he believed they were kind of a, a low form of life in the sense that they actually grow. You know, crystals you know, get bigger. They're not just static matter. They're they're actually moving. And I think, you know, if you will, in a way, he kind of launched the New Age movement with statements like that. People who wanted to believe in these kind of magical things anyway kind of glommed onto him. And unfortunately, again, a lot of that stuff has, what I feel, marred his very real, very scientific legacy. And now people think of him as this kind of woo-woo magician type person and and that's not what he was at all and I was I was just so angry when I saw the prestige at at how they treated Tesla cuz Tesla like I said he was a scientist he was an engineer he was not a magician mm-hmm. <laughs> and he didn't do magic tricks you know and it's like he he made real things that really work to see it visualized like that is very distressing cuz it just makes it that much harder to tell the truth about this pretty amazing character let's talk about some of his quirks well you can clarify these for me as i said in our pre-production talk i did a little bit of research on monsieur tesla and i found out that he didn't like to touch hair didn't like perfume, jewelry. Uh, he always ate at a place called Delmonico's, which was this expensive, expensive restaurant. <laughs> he drank whiskey every day because he claimed that that would make his life expectancy to 150 years. <laughs> and Some of those are true. <laughs> and he had all kinds of. Okay, go ahead. Why was that? He had all kinds of women after him, including Sarah Bernhard. But rumor is afoot that, quote-unquote, he destroyed his manhood. Now, I don't know exactly what the heck that means around the age of 40, if he castrated himself or what the heck he did. He made a statement at one point about kind of getting his willpower so strong, you know, that he could completely control his body. And somehow that's been twisted into he destroyed his uh-huh. manhood, which is not at all, I think, how how that originated. It's okay, a long game of gotcha. telephone. Yeah. There, were, there was speculation that he might be gay. I have never seen any evidence of that. I think he, and he explained this to, you know, pretty much anybody who asked. He was so passionate. All his passion was channeled into his inventions. He just he felt he could really change the world for the better. He didn't want to waste one time with anything that wasn't going to take him a step further to his goal. Sex just wasn't as exciting to him as <laughs> electricity. <laughs> I mean, that was his mistress. And, uh, you know, if you will. <laughs> okay. Although he did kind of fall in love with a pigeon at one point, which I'll come back to. And, I mean, it was truly the a, love of his life. <laughs> a pigeon. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, oh, geez, thanks for that visual, Lisa. Yeah, oh. we'll, come, <laughs> we'll come back to that. <laughs> no, but uh, he he did have a problem with human hair. You know that that's documented, and okay. it wasn't jewelry so much because he liked um, certain kinds of jewelry. He didn't like anything round. So pearls really uh-huh. upset his stomach because they were round and peaches and oranges. Anything that was round was just it's like that shape for whatever reason really upset him, mm-hmm. and it's unfortunate because he had to work with it for his work some of his old conductor balls and stuff had to you know be round but um he like i said he was obsessive compulsive so kind of random things that mm-hmm. bothered him when he ate at delmonica's i think one of the reasons he dined alone was because he would go through a stack of 18 napkins and he would drop them and hide them you know behind the floor because he, he was embarrassed you know and he didn't want these dirty napkins cluttering it up but you know you don't want to do that when other people are eating with you it's not mm-hmm. kosher right drop mm-hmm. your napkins on the floor yeah, yeah. you know so he kind of you know self isolated you know because it was hard for him to be in the company of others and he didn't like to shake people's hands because he felt he would get germs in school when he was in college he had looked at some pond scum water (laughs) Uh, most of us have done this at some point in junior high or something you go through the point (laughs) where you look at pond scum under a slide and you see all this bacteria crawling around in there Mm. and big hairy creatures and Tesla saw that and could never drink water again (laughs) that's why he drank drank alcohol because he knew that would kill off any bacteria (laughs) might be floating around in there so he trusted alcohol but he didn't trust pure water he in later years he gave up the the alcohol and, and drank boiled milk so, uh, and of course he did not live to be 150, but there was a time mm-hmm. where he thought he could. He said he came from a line of long-lived people and he also felt that overeating was a cause of death and he was extremely skinny oh, and skinny. He's definitely wrong about that one, I can tell yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my. How old was he when he died? He was um, in his 90s, he was wasn't in he? His late 80s. I late think. 80s, yeah. January of 43 yeah. when he died. He was born in, born in July of 56, so was that 87 or something, mm-hmm. somewhere around there. Um, he definitely was a quirky individual and he also he didn't tolerate he liked to be in the company of bright minds you know when he was around people who weren't who talked about things that didn't interest him he could be very rude he was also he was sometimes very rude to his own staff he would you know hire women and you know this one woman came in one day with a, a new dress she had brought and yes. he just thought the dress looked mm-hmm. horrible and frumpy and her sent her home and made her change and of course she left in tears and he was also a terrible anti-Semite which again oh, was very know. common at that point there were a lot of anti-Semites who were you know popular in those days I, I think I read somewhere that even Mark Twain was you know anti-Semite Is that right? which I would never oh. have guessed yeah, and, and, uh, and I'm not sure on Twain you know, I hate That's to cool. disparage him unfairly mm-hmm. but but Tesla would make these comments about Jews that were totally inappropriate. Hmm. You know, and I don't think he would have made them if he had lived 100 years from then, but again, he was the product of, you know, coming from a region where yeah. there was a lot of strife and racial, you know, ethnic mm-hmm. uh, problems, and unfortunately he brought some of that with him. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he definitely wasn't a perfect man. He wasn't a gift from God. He was a normal human being, you know, with his own flaws and um you know, some of them very distasteful. Like I said, he could be, he could be incredibly rude. He also, you know, was terrible with money. He could never manage finances. He would always live way beyond his means. He always dreamed he would be richer than he ever actually got. And at one point, he um, I mentioned that you know he kind of fell in love with this pigeon. <laughs> he, yeah, what's he that about? To, when, he, when he was a kid, he used to you know hang out in nature all the time, and he had a cat, and you know they'd go play by the fields, and the cat would chase birds and stuff. And you know in later years, 
there's actually a corner in New York City that's named after him because that's where he used to feed the pigeons. And I think it's because mm-hmm. he literally, you know, it's easier to get along with animals than it is with human beings. And when you're old and lonely, who mm-hmm. else is going to give you the time of day, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so the birds would kind of sit and talk to him, right? And he would bring them food and they'd be happy and they'd come and perch on his shoulder or on his head in some mm-hmm. cases. And one day he found this white pigeon that had a broken wing. So he took her back to his hotel room and nursed her back to health and uh and then she would always come to him when he went out to feed the pigeons she'd be right there they you know they kind of became friends and you know at one point as she got older you know she sat on his like window ledge and kind of gave him a meaningful look and flew away and he knew he said in that moment that he would never see her again that she was going off to die and and uh you know in the years that followed he kept looking kind of for her and he even said to somebody at one point like any one of these pigeons could be her like they, that she might have reincarnated as another pigeon or something I mean, just so kind of poignant you know, he was so attached to that one pigeon and to the point where he'd leave work early he never left work early for anything he'd work from 10am to 5am <laughs> he's just kept these crazy insane work hours but you know when this bird came into his life he spent money on her that he wouldn't spend on other people it, it, at what point one of his closest associates who'd worked with him for years and years mm-hmm. and years practically had to beg for his paycheck and, you know, had to point out that, you know, Tesla spent more on bird feed, you know, <laughs> you know, that kind of he was spending on his staff. And at that point, then Tesla did kind of felt chagrin because this guy had been his loyal servant and friend for many, many years. And Tesla himself had borrowed money from this guy many, many times. And now the guy's wife was sick, you know, it's just really kind of <laughs> cruel not to pay him. And Tesla wasn't ultimately a cruel guy. I mean, everything Tesla did, he really, like I said, he wanted to save how do I want to say? He wanted to make life better for people. For when, people. when he was a kid mm-hmm. and he would see people raking leaves, he's like, why can't we build a robot to do that? Why can't we build a machine to yes. do that? It's such a repetitive yeah. task. Why mm-hmm. should a human being with a brilliant mind have to sit there and do something so dumb and repetitive? And Not dumb, but, you know, so mechanical, so to speak. Was there and ever any women in his life? There was a woman who very much fell in love with him, and it was the wife of his best friend, Robert yeah. Johnson, the editor of the Century Magazine I was talking about. Yeah. His wife definitely seemed to have a crush on him and wrote him these letters that pretty much verge on being love letters. And, and it, you know, sometimes we read too much into things. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, there are times I've written these really nice notes to men and I think they've thought I had a crush on them and I was just trying to be nice, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you just never know, you know. It's yeah. like, you know, she might have just genuinely been really effusive and lovely and never had any serious thoughts about him. But they, they do kind of border on she was always like, when are you coming to see us? And, you know, the house is so empty without you and, wow. you know, stuff. But uh, yeah. he, and he liked her, you know, he would he would joke with her, but I, I've never read anything from her that in any way matched the tone of her letters to him. He always seemed respectful, but kept a distance. Oh, so. I see. Um, there were, you know, women he enjoyed spending time with. There was a very accomplished piano player, and he would often insist that she be his, you know, partner. And, you know, I think... He just felt comfortable with her as a friend. It was somebody who could talk intelligently, so he liked having her around. And having her around mm-hmm. helped fend the other women off, right? Because oh, <laughs> he had a partner. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. go away. I'm already here, you know, with somebody else. So, uh, but he, he never, you know, he he used to kid her about building a little cottage for her in the city, so she could have the best of both worlds, kind of the country and the city. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, but I, I, he was never serious about her. It doesn't sound like. Like you said before, I guess his work was his mistress. 
It was. And I mean, it, he basically yeah. said that to Mark Twain. He's like, a writer can have can be inspired by a woman and that can give him more fuel mm -hmm. for his mm -hmm. art but he said an inventor is so full of passion if he were to turn it to a person his work would suffer you know because then that passion wouldn't be available for his work and I would highly dispute that of course <laughs> I think yeah, passion breeds passion you know? yeah absolutely <laughs> your passion in one area you can be passionate in ten at once you know yeah. so, I mean that's my life <laughs> yeah I, agree. I have all kinds of interests you know and yeah. one doesn't seem to detract from the other but it is a it's definitely a factor of time I, I know there are only so many hours in the day so uh and one of the reasons, too, he would even go to these parties at all was basically to make contacts and raise money. I mean, that was a, a huge motivator. He was always looking for his next investor, and he really thought wireless energy would be his big legacy to the world, even though he'd already given us, you know, the capturing of alternating current and, and radio. And, and uh, he, you know, he basically kind of pre-invented the fluorescent light. He used mm -hmm. to, you know, hold these bulbs that would light up with no apparent means of support. They were precursors to fluorescent lights. He invented, you know, kind of the neon light. He didn't bother to patent those things because they were just kind of trifles to him. He took x-ray pictures before anybody kind of knew how to do that. He never claimed to have discovered x-rays. He read about them, you know, with the rest of the world when um, Rogen, or however you pronounce that, had discovered them. Um, but he, he was experimenting in ways that perhaps others weren't. He experimented with a ruby in a way that sounds very much like a laser beam. And again, this was long before lasers yes. were really discovered, quote-unquote, until the 50s. But from oh. reading what Tesla, it sounded like Tesla was playing with something remarkably laser-like. And we will come back to that in a few minutes. Okay. <laughs> that whole particle beam. When we come back, we're going to go into World War II, and we're going to talk about a reported particle beam that Tesla is said to have made. In fact, there are rumors afoot that Britain had been in negotiations to buy this particle beam to shoot down airplanes during the Second World War with Tesla for $30 million. And apparently what happened, according to the rumors, he wanted payment before he sent the last part of the technology to Britain. When Yugoslavia was attacked by the Nazis, Tesla also tried to sell them five of these particle beams. Now we fast forward to the 1980s in the Reagan era, and Star Wars, which is exactly what that is. It was a particle beam that would shoot into the air and shoot down incoming ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads. When we come back, we're going into that, folks. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host... Brent Holland. I just want to let you know that you're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM, Laurentian University. And we're in the beautiful city of Sudbury, sitting right on the lake. And as I look outside, it's hazy, and we just might get that thunderstorm, the first one of the season tonight. You can listen to Night Fright any Wednesday between 3 and 5 in the afternoon and 10 p.m. and midnight at night. Cape Radio, Cape Breton University, Sydney, Nova Scotia, from Wednesday, 3.30 in the afternoon to 5.30. CILU 102.7 FM, Lakehead University, Thunder Bay, Ontario, Sunday night at midnight. CJMQ 88.9 FM, the voice of the townships. And that's in Sherbrooke, Quebec, just a little bit south of Montreal, Saturday, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. CJUM 101.5 FM, University of Manitoba, Winnipeg, Manitoba. 
And that's Wednesday nights, Thursday morning, same thing, <laughs> 1 a.m., Sound FM 100.3 FM, University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario. Sunday night, Monday morning, three shows back-to-back, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., and CKXU 88.3 FM, the University of Lethbridge in Lethbridge, Alberta. And that's Friday nights at midnight. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. And now back to Lisa Pease. And Lisa Pease, let's talk about this particle beam and the technology behind it and I got a funny feeling there was more to it than that and I've always suspected that's one of the reasons why Tesla has gone unnoticed over the years because I got a funny feeling this technology actually exists and they're trying to hush it up as much as possible. How do you feel? The United States was very concerned. Uh, there was there were reports at one point that Tesla was going to sell the mm-hmm. beam to the League of Nations. You know, this guy had written if such a report is founded on scientific fact, and if Tesla should give the secret to Geneva, it would be in the hands of half a dozen governments in Europe, and they would be using the beam instead of guns to fight one another. And it said if the United States government should obtain control of it, no other government would obtain it, and the American government could act as a guardian. And I think that's probably a safe bet as to what happened. And there, there was a break in at Tesla's hotel room. People would come in and, you know, try and steal his papers, and Tesla said, you know, he kept his most important thoughts in his head. <laughs> he didn't write them down. So, unfortunately, you know, some of what we might have needed to know died, you know, with Tesla. But I, I do think, and, and here's the other thing that most people don't understand. Tesla never envisioned this as an offensive weapon. Tesla described something that would be like mm-hmm. built into a fort. It would be a defensive weapon only. It would be so heavy and so stationary that it could only be used to defend one's airspace, you know, and one's coastline. And just to further that, his <laughs> teleforce machine, what he wanted to do with it was give it to all the nations because he so hated war. Right. That if he, they all had the weapons, exactly. then it'd be like giving everybody nuclear weapons. If everybody had it, no one would dare use it, right? Yeah. You know, except that, of course, the fear is somebody would dare use it. Yeah, that's the problem, the isn't it, in a nutshell. Right. Yeah. Right. But, but, yeah, Tesla had originally, like I said, built the beam not to be an offensive weapon, to, but to be a defensive weapon. Mm-hmm. On, you know, but instantly mines across the planet said, hmm, if we can use it for defensive purposes, we can turn around to use it for offensive purposes. Isn't that always the problem, isn't it? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I do think, you know, when Tesla died, there were papers missing, you know, from his personal effects. Because you know, no one had kept an inventory of his papers before he died, we don't know what was taken. Um, it does seem the, the researchers who've done the most work on that seem to track the papers to the Wright Patterson Air Force Base, which is the same one where the supposed crashed whatever at Roswell pieces mm-hmm. were taken. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of interesting because it happened close to, around the same period of time. Not not that there's any relationship. <laughs> Well, we don't know. I wouldn't do want they? somebody to say, "Oh, she said we shot down a spaceship with a particle beam." No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying that. I'm not even thinking that. I wouldn't have thought if I hadn't just said those two things side by side. That's okay, Lisa. But, Tune um, into our. Uh, don't think there's any connection there. No. In July, we're doing a whole special on UFOs, so tune in for that one there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! But uh, anyway, no. But this this technology really was way ahead of his, you know, ahead of its time. Completely. I mean, we barely split the atom and started to figure out how to build a nuclear weapon. He was already trying to sling particles in series, you know, through a beam, mm-hmm. and 
Yeah, that's why he didn't want to call it a death ray, because he said a ray dissipates quickly. You know, it's like this would be a beam of particles, you know, actual things that you're shooting, not just like a ray of light or yeah, something. Yeah, he would you know. shoot them focused in the air or, or yeah, wherever. Yeah, yeah. And, and it does seem that that's, you know, what did eventually become Star Wars. Now, again, whether they built that based on Tesla's papers would be sheer speculation because we don't know what they had or what mm -hmm. was in them. And, and sadly, a lot of Tesla's writing is a little obtuse. He often left out important details. I mean, when people build Tesla coils, if you don't follow his patents exactly, you don't have much success. And even if you do follow it exactly, you might still be missing something that he just didn't think to put down because it was so clear to him in his head. He didn't always include all the ingredients in his recipes, so to speak. So, you know, I, I'm not sure. You know, again, I, I think it's a complete fallacy to draw a direct line to mm -hmm. Star Wars and say that came from Tesla. Isn't that it's interesting, very similar, though? similar, you know. Yeah. Isn't that interesting, though, that geniuses in general just assume that novices like me just understand automatically what they're talking about? Right. Like right. we'd be on the same level with them. It's hard for them to think with any other brain but their own. I well, mean, that's all that. of us at our own levels of intelligence. I think we all think that way, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In terms of music, Mozart was very frustrated with the rest of the world because he worked so fast, and people oh, yeah. couldn't figure out how he could work so fast. Yeah. Uh, and he had yeah. a lot of competition, and his competitors in music were just trying to that. marginalize him all the time because he worked so fast. Oh, he's not working in detail, et cetera, et cetera. Right, and that's the other thing, too. Lesser minds always want to put down greater minds because I think they honestly don't think they are greater minds because they simply don't connect with it. They can't recognize it and or they are totally jealous. I mean, you know, obviously that plays a huge role. You know, lesser minds try to bring greater minds down out of sheer jealousy. But often I also think they truly don't get it. They really, they actually think they're worse than them instead of being better than them. Because <laughs> how could anybody be better yeah, than themselves? exactly. But, yeah, I have a funny story about Mozart. I was in um, sure. Vienna once where he used to live, and uh, there's a building, and I don't remember if he had lived in that building or he had lived near that building. I think he lived near this particular building, but this building is, is quite incredible. It's been there since before Mozart. Every window has a different treatment. It's a slightly different shape, different awning, different pattern, and it's kind of like 17 windows on the building, but each one is just a little different. And, you know, in Mozart's music, he never repeats a phrase, and I often wonder if he was inspired by that building. <laughs> because he's the kind of guy who would have noticed that and Absolutely. thought, why make all the windows the same if everyone can be a little different? Mm -hmm. you know? and so anyway, and, and who knows, maybe the, the architect had been inspired by Mozart, maybe it went the other direction, I'm not sure. But like I said, the building definitely dates back to that point in time. And I would like to talk about Nikola Tesla's legacy, and then I purposely saved some time so we could talk about your amazing writing. Oh, <laughs> and the screenplay. So let's oh, just wrap up on. I'm not too much about that, just because I'm not not willing to share that publicly. So I don't okay. want to save too much time for that because oh, yeah, well, I get... won't give away my structure or my hooks or whatever. Yeah. Well, let's see if I can find out some information about that, anyways, for the folks <laughs> that are listening. And let's wrap up with Nicola first. Okay. And what do you think his lasting legacies are? Obviously, AC. I would say that's probably his biggest one. Yeah, the fact that he captured alternating current when, like I said, at that time, people literally thought that whole motion machine, that it was just an impossibility. How could you capture the energy going one way at one point and then reversing going the other way without them canceling each other out? Mm -hmm. And he came up with, if you can imagine, like a rolling X where each axis of the X flashes at a different time, that's kind of 
he, you know, he had these uh, signals out of sync with each other. And so at one point it would be like plus minus going this way and that would reverse minus plus. But if you have two of those, the pluses can work so that they're always propelling it around the circle and they're not coming back. That's right. And then he yeah. thought, well, with three of those, we could get even more. You could have a polyphase machine. And I think that's what they ended up using at Niagara Falls was a polyphase. I don't know how many, you know, X's, so to speak, <laughs> you had. But, uh, you know, he, lot, it was more than know. two, I know, because that, uh, that was a point of contention at one point. But that, that was so huge. I mean, I don't think people today, we just take it so for granted. But, again, it was like he truly invented the impossible, just shocked the world. And everybody at that point in time knew who Tesla was. He was so famous in his day. Now, there are stories, and I don't know, again, if these are true, because I've, I've only read it in one source, and I don't know how credible that one That's source okay. is. That's okay. Go ahead and share But the, the source says that Edison and J.P. Morgan kind of conspired to work with book publishers to keep Tesla's name out of the books because the you know they wanted the Edison name to be prominent in the field of electricity so that people would wow. continue to invest in GE and the Edison yeah, property yeah. and to discredit Tesla and you know keep him from being commercially viable and I, I don't know if that's true but it would sure, sure explain a lot because even in his own time he wasn't as famous as he got older. Now, he did get a revival on his 75th birthday. Mm -hmm. Time magazine actually put him on the cover. He, uh, as he got into his upper 60s, Tesla started a habit of calling the press and having a little press conference on his birthday. And he would talk about the latest thing he was looking into. And because, you know, at that point, he, he was only maybe 20 years past his most famous invention, people still knew who he was, and they would show up very eager. Now, it kind of had a negative effect in the sense that he would talk about these big ideas and after a few of these in a row they realized he's never going to build any of these <laughs> he's just, just talking about mm -hmm. they're just ideas and so the interest waned and kind of dropped Concepts. off but 75 mm -hmm. being a big year I think some of his friends helped get together and brought this about and people from all over the world wrote him including people like Albert Einstein sending mm -hmm. him happy birthday That's greetings right. yep. I mean it was, it was quite a wonderful thing um, earlier in the century, and, and I think it was 1914 or 15, again, I'd have to check my notes, there was a rumor that he and Edison were going to be splitting the Nobel Prize that year. And both That's of right. them yeah. were upset by this because neither felt they should have to share it with the other. <laughs> but it's not clear, again, whether the rumor was false to begin with or because of the reactions if the Nobel Prize Committee decided, hmm, better not go there. <laughs> I, you know, it's a complete mystery what happened. All I've seen is the actual New York Times article announcing that Tesla, you know, and Edison were going to split the prize. And then, of course, the announcement that other people had actually won the prize that year. Yeah, they dropped so, them. Yeah. So the missing part of the story, again, all I've seen is speculation from a variety of authors, but no one seems to have nailed down what the truth of that incident was. And I don't know if people who knew the truth would actually tell it the right way. <laughs> you know, everybody wanted to protect yeah. somebody or hurt somebody, you know, through their own account. So it's just one of those mysteries. What happened? It seemed like it was coming their way and then it didn't. But Edison, I mean, Tesla did at one point win, ironically, the Edison Medal, which yes. was not handed out yes, by Edison right. himself, mm -hmm. but by a society that had taken his name, an electrical society in New York. And uh, Tesla was kind of upset when he got 
nominated for the award because he's like, you're going to decorate my body at a time when, like, I'm starving, I have no income, and you're going to give me, like, a medal? It's like, you know, give me an investment. You know, help me set up a lab. <laughs> don't don't pin a medal on my poor shabby coat. You know, he was, he was really kind of pissed about it. And his friends, you know, who had gone to the trouble of trying to get him the award, of course, you know, managed to talk him down and talked him into coming and accepting the award. And, you know, but... uh you know, very interesting moment in his life, and and in a way, it was like a great honor and yet a great humiliation because the name of the medal itself was Edison. <laughs> you know, that of his rival. So that yeah, wasn't too cool. Must have been frustrating for him. Yeah, and, and there's a story on the internet I want to talk about because these things just get out there. And there's a story about these cars because at one point Edison had built his electric car, and Tesla had had an electric car. I mean, he didn't build the car; he just changed the motor to run on electricity and evidently he was with somebody who thought he basically put it together by magic was pulling energy out of the sky basically out of nothing and powering this car with absolutely nothing other accounts say it was a zinc battery and I believe that yeah I think <laughs> the like zinc I said, Tesla be... was not a magician he did not discover mm-hmm. a source of free energy you know as, as far as I can tell I mean and I've done a lot of research because you know there were a lot of rumors oh Tesla had this mysterious energy source it's like no if he did he wouldn't have died poor you know and he didn't die entirely poor because uh, thank goodness uh, George Westinghouse who mm-hmm. he had worked with died long before Tesla you know did uh but his son, when he found out, it, just before this Edison medal came about, Tesla had to declare bankruptcy, and it was in all the papers in New York, you know, great inventor, bankrupt. Can you imagine how humiliating mm. that is? You're this big genius, and you've, you've put the world on a new course towards, you know, an electrical future, and, and you can't even pay your own bills. And at that point, George Westinghouse Jr., you know, kind of came to the rescue because at an earlier point in his life, especially as they were heading to the Chicago World's Fair, George Westinghouse had gone to Tesla and said, you know that 250 I promised you for horsepower? He goes, if I honor that contract, the bankers are going to take me over. If we break that contract, I have a chance at saving the company and getting alternating current out to the world. But it's really now in your hands because I don't know what to do. You tell me what to do. And Tesla took the contract and ripped it up and, and said, up. you know, mm-hmm. you were the first guy who believed in me, and I believe in you, and, you know, we are going to bring alternating current to the world. But by ripping up that contract, he gave up literally millions and millions of dollars. Oh, in trillions. Could you imagine today? Well, nowadays, in, in today's money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, billions anyway. I'm not sure it's quite a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Pay um, off the debt. Yeah. yeah. I don't even think, not even that was worth that much. But, uh, George Westinghouse Jr., that when he found out he was bankrupt, he arranged to pick up all of um, Nikola Tesla's expenses. He was living at a hotel, and he had a lot of past debt at that point. He had already by then sold his Wardenclyffe property in part to pay his debt, uh, but, you know, it kept accumulating. He didn't have enough income, and so the Westinghouse, you know, business basically agreed to pay his bills for the rest of his life, so he never had to worry about actually having a place to live or food to eat anything else was kind of on him, but I mm-hmm. think they give him a small stipend, too, of like $7,000 a year, which, again, at that time was not insubstantial, but you know, it wasn't enough to make him rich, but it certainly kept him from being poor. But if he had discovered free energy, my point is he wouldn't have needed any of that because that's the kind of thing he could have truly sold for millions of dollars and would have. Mm-hmm. He, he knew all the people who would have bought it if he had been able to come up with that. So I just kind of want to put the, the nail in that coffin. It's like, that didn't happen. 
Has and, anybody and the car out? was powered by conventional means, even if the guy who was sitting next to him didn't understand how he did it. <laughs> Has Go anybody ahead. come out to pick up the mantle? I know Tesla's dream was to transmit electricity from one point in the Earth to another point in the Earth through the air. Has anybody really picked up on that? Well, like I said, only only that group, and I, I it was a study. I, I think those products came from a study at MIT. There oh, was a group right. at MIT yes. that was yeah, looking into the wireless transmission of energy. And like I said, there were wireless devices, and it was in all the news. I think it came out in like January of 2006, and then it kind of disappeared again. And I've been waiting to see them in the stores because it would be cool to have a little wireless lamp around the house. I'd like that, you know. Tell me <laughs> Carrying about around it. with me, you know, reading bed, whatever. Yeah, that would be great. That would be fun, but... Uh, I, I, I don't want to speculate. There's any number of reasons why that wouldn't work well. And, of course, one of the things J.P. Morgan had brought up right away when he found out, oh, I, I didn't even finish that part of the story. You know, of course, when J.P. Morgan found Marconi had sent the signal, then Tesla confessed, well, I'm trying to send much more than a signal. I'm trying to send energy to Europe. Yeah, that was And J.P. Yeah. Morgan flipped his lid and said, you're never going to get another cent from me, which actually wasn't true. He ended up giving him a little bit more money down the line for something else. But uh, and J.P. Morgan's son, who is also named J.P. Morgan, as I seem to recall, <laughs> um, gave him some money, you know, a few times as well. But never, never in the same, you know, big amounts as before, and certainly never for the same reasons. So um, Tesla really burned a very serious bridge at that point, from which he never really recovered. I think. I think Nikola Tesla is coming more and more known, and I think shows yeah. like this will help out. But also, I want to talk about your screenplay. And well, like I said, I, I don't want to talk about my screenplay because I don't, I don't talk about that. But I will talk about. Um, there was a ceremony at uh, Niagara Falls. Nicely done. Um, Nicely yeah. done, Lisa. <laughs> uh, you know, people may not know, but there's a statue on both sides of the falls. One on the American side and one on the Canadian mm-hmm. side. I've been to both of them. And now, is that so, in your screenplay? I'm uh, trying again. Say. I'm teasing you. <laughs> I'm not going to say it should be. I don't know if it will be. We'll see. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll stop. I uh, was going to say, the statues didn't exist in Tesla's life, so that's a clue. <laughs> but I wanted to go, because it was the 150th anniversary yeah. of his birth. This was back in 2006, and I had seen pictures of the statue that this wonderful artist, a Canadian artist, had built, and the statue captures the essence of his life. It shows him at his best. You know, he's really a handsome, charismatic man. He was tall, thin. He he was always very stylishly dressed. So the statue has him in a long, flowing coat with a top hat, and, and, uh, and with his cane, he's drawing in the sand because when he first envisioned... How the alternating current motor was going to work. He was walking with a friend in Budapest in a park, and the sun was setting, and they were reciting poetry together. And all of a sudden, he just knew in a flash. He, you know, we've all had those moments yeah. where you're trying to think of something, and all of a sudden, you know exactly how to solve a problem. Just that like was that. how it was for Tesla. And he started drawing wildly in the sand. His friends like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "I figured it out." And he started drawing these circles, you know, showing, like I said, the circle with the X and the pluses and the minuses, and how you could capture the energy such that it would propel the motor in one direction and not alternate back and forth. Mm -hmm. And his friend didn't quite understand it because he couldn't quite see it as Tesla was describing it. But in that moment, Tesla had already invented you know the mechanics of the solution he just had to find the money then to actually build a machine to do it but right then he discovered it so the statue has him drawing in the sand you know to imitate that moment although what he's drawing in the sand isn't what tesla drew is he's drawing actually amperage you know sine waves mm-hmm. instead 
but also on the side of the statue is a, is a marvelous quote from Tesla. At one point, he was so proud that he had actually been able to harness Niagara Falls because, like I said, that had been his dream since childhood. And he, he said something about marveling at the power of the mind that, you know, when you really have that thought and you hold it, you know, very firmly in your head, sometimes you can make that happen, which, of course, is the premise of that book, The Circle, and half a dozen other, you know, books mm-hmm. for how to get mm-hmm. your the secret and all these other things. Mm-hmm. It's like, just focus. <laughs> focus, focus, focus. <laughs> so I'm hoping if I focus, focus, focus on this screenplay, <laughs> maybe <laughs> see, I'm talking about a screenplay now. <laughs> maybe I'll get a draft that I'm happy with and I'll be happy to share and shop around. So, uh, I've shown, you know, a couple of drafts to friends. You know, I get their comments and I think about it and whether I want to incorporate them or not. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. And then I go write another draft. But, you know, it's 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 a tough story. And I will also say there are a number of other screenwriters in town. There have been easily 20 or 30 Tesla scripts floating around. And it's hard because most people are famous for one thing in their life. And Tesla's really famous for several. Yes, <laughs> I yes. mean, we didn't even talk about his bladeless turbine, you know, and how I think it's Toyota's now using that in their cars. I mean, there's there's all kinds of other kind of sideline inventions that to him were just throwaways in his pursuit for, you know, his his holy grail quest for wireless energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, like I said, I think the reason the story hasn't been told is it's very hard to squish down into two hours. So. Indeed. He's been toyed with making it into a miniseries because then you could tell all the pieces of his life without having to condense them. And for most people, that'd be really boring. You don't want to know all about their life. You just want to know about mm-hmm. their great moments. And, you know, with Mozart and Salieri, you had this great, you know, rivalry. So That's that was right. easy to yeah. focus the story there. The with, you know, Tesla and Edison, if you focus only on the rivalry, you miss so much because there's so much else. That's in my mind extremely interesting. Oh, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so it's hard. (laughs) What is the essence in your mind of Nikola Tesla that we should celebrate? Is he a tragic character in history? Do you feel? Yes, I I do feel part of part of the reason for his latter day anonymity is a bit attributable to himself. He he did kind of promise more than he could deliver. You know, and that's kind of a lesson too it's like you know do be careful the the more extreme your claims the better you have to be able to support them and that's especially true for a conspiracy minded audience it's like when you say things that aren't supported by fact people turn off and they turn away and they just write you off it is so important to be 100% factual and Mm -hmm. not not stretch the limits of things because you know I mean the reason I pursue this is I just I want us all to share the same reality. I want to live in the truth. I don't want to live in a false version of history, and I don't want to have to talk to people as if their false version of history is the truth when I know that it's not. Precisely. But I, I also know that people won't listen to me if I say even one little thing that they can take apart and say, oh, that mm. wasn't true. Therefore, nothing she said is true. Everything can be called into question. And that's why it's so important for us more than most people. <laughs> we have to be extremely careful. And Tesla was not careful in that way. He would say things like, I think I picked up a signal from Mars. And all of a sudden, that became his legacy. And then mm. it was easy to write him off and dismiss him and, uh, don't put him in your textbook he's the guy who's already heard from mars ha 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 crazy old man you know i mean you just you can't do that to yourself and and to your work and to your legacy so um that's i think part you know the lesson tesla the other part is like i said when somebody truly does have a breakthrough genius idea we don't reward them we don't reward the people who take risks in society we reward the people who are most like us, you know, 
that's kind of a majority rule society as opposed to truth and best ideas rule. I mean, if the best idea ruled, we would have had Betamax and not VHS. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's all kinds of examples of that throughout history. So that's, you know, part of the tragedy is our mm-hmm. collective tragedy that, you know, we tend to stick with what seems to be the tried and true and, you know, what's better known as opposed to what's better. <laughs> now, I know in your writing... And you're an exceptional writer. You may be the best writer I know. Oh, stop. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) No, you are. You really are. And I want to talk about your blog and your writing for a second here. I know you carry that high ethic over into your writing. Now, there's a lot of people listening that may be budding writers. What would you say to them who's thinking about maybe going to school, who's thinking about maybe going in a different direction with their writing? What would you recommend that they do? Well, first, learn the rules of grammar before you break them. Don't Bingo. break them in ignorance. Break them only in knowledge thereof. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> That's what any painter or writer or musician or composer would tell you, too. Learn the basics first, then change the rules. Don't just skip around them. I mean, that's truly what separates the great from the good and and the, the long-lived in their creative lives versus those flash in the pans because you really have to you have to know how to write. Mm-hmm. And it's not hard to learn, but, you know, I still have to look things up in a style guide now and then, you know, strunk in white or whatever. It's like, you know, businesses, does that have an apostrophe after the S, you know, or before, or how does that work, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it ends with ESS, so therefore what? And, you know, it's just don't be afraid. Go look it up. If you don't know how to spell a word, check a dictionary. I mean, don't assume. <laughs> so that'd be rule number one. Rule number two is be very clear what you want to say, and I don't mean just have a lot of facts. What is the shape of the facts? And that's the hardest thing with my screenplay, too. It's like, what exactly am I trying to say about Tesla when you say, what is the essence of the man? In a, in a way, that is the nut of the of why it's so hard. How do you, you know, how do you tell somebody's story? And and that's that's something I'm still learning, so I would not pretend to be an expert on that. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but you have to figure out what you're trying to say, and you're not just trying to say this happened, then this happened, then this happened. That's not a story. Hotel Rwanda, if you see that movie, yes, I have, what actually. the author is trying to say is one man can make an incredible difference. And if you're willing to, you know, risk your life, sometimes you can save so many. And that's an important message. That's right. And without that message, it's just a horrible story of killing, you know. But with that message, it's a very powerful statement of what one lowly person can do when they just decide to say that this is wrong and I'm going to help. Do you know the story of General Dallaire? He's a no. he's a Canadian hero. He was the Canadian general that was in charge of the United Nations, mm-hmm. the peacekeepers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nick Nolte in that movie plays oh, yeah. General Dallaire. Right. Um, it's kind of loosely based on, on General Dallaire. Uh, Nick Nolte plays a colonel. General Dallaire was a general. Right. <laughs> um, after he came back from Rwanda, because he didn't get any support whatsoever to help try and save 800,000 Tutsis, it was just massive murder everywhere. He had a nervous breakdown. He was found in a park in Ottawa under a bench, uh, completely drunk and uh, oh. suicidal. Oh, that's so he has since written an extraordinary book called Shake Hands with the Devil. Wow. And wow. Uh, it's an incredible ride, as I say. Um, it shows the ineptness of the United Nations all the countries on the Security Council, they just didn't want to deal with it. And he puts it right there in black and white. And pun fully intended, 
basically because they were dealing with an African country and wow. it was black people. Wow. That the world just stood by and let it happen. I, I do feel that there is a definite, there's definite racism in the fact that, yeah, we just stand by and we let the genocide go on and, you know, a, a lot of people do talk about Darfur these days. Yes. Uh, yeah, very few talk about the, the near genocide in the Congo. I mean, many more people being killed in the Congo. But that's much more complicated because Darfur is, you know, largely, what do I want to say, an ethnic thing, whereas mm -hmm. Congo is more about resource control. Yes. And there are warring factions there because it's a very incredibly mineral-rich area. And America is the one who put some of the worst people in power there for many, many years. You know, we helped get Lumumba out and yes. we got Mobutu yeah. in and the country has suffered, you know, for many years ever since. And so I think that's why we see many more stories about Darfur in the American media than we ever see about the Congo. And I got really mad at the New York Times the other day because they were writing about the conflict in a total absence of historical context. I'm like, could you just once remind people, hmm. you know, why there's war in the Congo? Because we helped set up a dictator there, you know, and then, you know, we've been trying to get the minerals out ever since. Hmm. And, uh, you know, we supported the graft and the corruption there because it's been to the benefit of big business. You know, I just, I was ranting, you know. <laughs> like, Good for you. You know, it's, and, and it needed to be said, unfortunately. You know, what, I just want to tell the folks that are listening, again, if you want to be a research writer, Go to Lisa's blog and take a look at what she does. It's amazing. Even if you disagree, she stands firm and she stands up and she says what she feels and she says it succinctly and with honor and with truth, with that truth she alluded to before. And I just want to say that you'd be a great role model for yeah. students who are budding writers, budding researchers to follow. Can you give your uh, your blog... Yeah, sure. It's, I should have uh, written it down. I apologize. It's realhistoryarchives.blogspot.com. Uh, and if you even just remember Real History Archives and just search that, you know, in Google, it'll come right up. So, uh, yeah, I do encourage people to, you know, search any word when you get there and you'll find stories about it. Uh, some of it is just personal ramblings about me and some of it long, you know, lengthy articles. I wrote a real good one about uh, Gerald Ford and the CIA and Watergate that... <laughs> I wish I had published somewhere because it turned into a monster piece. But, uh, or a screenplay. But it's out there for free, so go find it. <laughs> or a screenplay. And speaking about screenplays, um, no, I'm teasing you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I have, I have so many ideas for stories I want to write. There are so many stories in the I world, know. and yet it's hard to find, you know, especially as a, you know, somewhat new writer who hasn't actually sold anything yet, it's hard to find something that's incredibly commercial and compelling because you can usually get one or the other but to get them both together is the hard part so uh, we'll see we'll see well but, I'm anxious uh, to read your screenplay well very, there's another anxious. screenplay I'd share with you I, I, my first screenplay I called The Alchemy Protocol it's about a reporter who uh, stumbles into a, an election where the returns oh. were all counted by computer and the computers didn't uh, necessarily yeah. get it right and and he finds out not only, uh, well, I don't want to give too much away, but, uh, but uh -huh. it's my little spy thriller piece. <laughs> that sounds amazing. So, I, I'd be happy to share that one because I'm pretty sure no one will ever make that film. It was only, well, you know, my first little script, but I'm happy to share it and it's a fun read. So don't say that because there could be some filmmaker out there right now. So give us a synopsis without giving uh -huh. it away. Well, uh, uh, a reporter basically stumbles into a, a wide-ranging election conspiracy that uh, touches on his own profession. <laughs> so 
also the media. Um, uh-huh. uh, he's assisted. He's a very much of an anti-conspiracy kind of guy, and hooks up with a you know a conspiracy re- researching a producer at his company. You know, at his uh, at his news station to try and figure out what happened in this election, and ends up having to risk his career to get to the truth and all that kind of good stuff. So I uh, don't want to tell you how it ends, but his co-workers give him a standing ovation. So. <laughs> I love cerebral movies. Yeah. I find there's too many movies now where they just put an effect and then another effect maybe 10 minutes later, and then they go, geez, what do we put in between those 10 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> you know you what know, I mean? For a while, I mean, we had a real beat of good action movies. I mean, really good. Like Iron Man had a lot to say about war and war profiteering and mm-hmm. I mean it was you know a movie that worked on many levels because he had had the good special effects they had the cool superhero but it also had this cool underlying message too and movies that can do all those things I think do much better than those that are just about action or just about message because uh, I loved Lions for Lambs but it was pretty much all about the message of you know what about Iraq and Afghanistan what are we really going to do there and it's funny it was, I watched it last night yeah, it's a great. I I yeah, love it. I think it's a great time. movie, but mm-hmm. I can see why it wasn't very commercial. It's a lot of people sitting around yeah. talking. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But on the other hand, if if you care about the planet, I think it's a great movie. And Absolutely, people still go see it. I've um, never asked you this in all the times you've been on the show. What are your inspirations? What inspired you to become a writer? Oh my gosh. I've always written on some level. When I was little, I used to write a lot of poetry, and hmm. I was in an improv troupe for a couple of years where you're basically writing on your feet. <laughs> um, They're fun, aren't they? Improvs, yeah. yeah. When I when the internet first went public, my very first search was JFK assassination, and you know I started uh-huh. chatting there, and my posts got longer and longer, and you have to try and make a point quickly and succinctly and, and then get away from it and then you have to come back and be able to defend it when everybody wants to rip you to shreds <laughs> and uh, you know it's like somebody wants to be a writer I, I strongly encourage them to get in some news discussion group for a little bit and then get the hell out and the reason I say that is if you don't get out fast enough you can lose the rest of your life trying to prove a point to people who will never admit they're wrong <laughs> yeah isn't that so strange like, that should be a total waste of a life <laughs> yeah I don't get that at all either Yeah, Yeah. I do, I do. It's like you you can't lose if you don't admit defeat, right? (laughs) I mean, there are people who honestly believe that. I never thought of it as a a win-lose situation somehow. I always thought of it as a win-win. The more knowledge I have and the more accurate knowledge I have, the more I can make choices about my own life and directions. Oh, sure, sure. No, it's, it's good in that sense. But like I said, I think I spent five years in Internet news groups, and it, it honed my writing, and it definitely spurred my research. But in terms of the rest of my life, oh, my gosh. <laughs> five years just disappeared like that. Goes fast. <laughs> you come home from work, oh. and you're dying to get back to that argument with somebody you've never even seen face-to-face. <laughs> What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> it's a purely intellectual exercise, and the, my body was not getting any physical exercise. <laughs> So uh, I don't I don't recommend it for that long, but I do recommend it for a short period of time because it's a great way to learn and to see what's out there and, like I said, and hone your ability to make a case and support it, which is you know what good writing is about, and Absolutely. and not just um, not I mean fiction writing is the same thing. Like I said, the fictional stories I enjoy, and then there are very few of them, but the ones I enjoy have a point to make. You know, I mean mm-hmm. Jane Eyre. One of the reasons that's such a good book is it's about you know how women should 
be able to, you know, have jobs and lives like men that, you know, they shouldn't have to be this other sex, you know, they, yes. they should be able to be independent and have all the mm-hmm. opportunities of men. And it's, it's not the focus of the story, but it's a strong undercurrent. It's what makes it powerful. And Pride and Prejudice, like, yeah, you gotta be not prejudging of people and just, you know, first impressions aren't always right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can I just brag about my honey for a second? Oh, sure. Okay. Well, you know, she's Persian. She was the first woman miner in Iran. The first woman miner? In Iran. Wow. She has a PhD in mining. Isn't that impressive? That is impressive. That's very interesting. And the mine... There's probably a story in that. (laughs) She looked at the mine, and she turned the mine around to be more efficient. She implemented several different changes, Mm -hmm. and uh, she blew the guys away. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Completely. Well, and again, that's the thing that diversity brings new ideas. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's funny the influence Obama's having beyond just being president at my own firm where I work. I work for an accounting firm, and Mm -hmm. they're they're making a big push for diversity of inclusiveness. And they're saying this isn't just to be politically correct, this is because we're finding that when you include more diverse viewpoints, you actually get better ideas. Imagine (laughs) that. You wouldn't think of. And, you know, there's real you know, bottom line benefit to having diversity. Absolutely. You know, God, what a shocker. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Welcome to 2009. Why didn't you yeah, get this exactly. 100 years ago? Exactly. Yeah. But uh, it's funny, I think Malcolm Gladwell, I don't know if you know his books. No, I don't. I'm point. sorry. Oh, he, he's a really interesting guy, and he writes very well. He, he takes quirky anecdotes and comes up with these these great Theses, so to speak. He wrote a book called The Tipping Point, where he talked about different people. Okay, I've heard of this book. Yeah, yes. like you know what it takes for an idea to like go from just a few people mm-hmm. to you know thousands of people. What is it that you know causes something to take hold where something else won't? Um, and then he had a book, Blink, where we make these snap judgments, and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. But his latest book, I think, is Outliers. And Shoot, I just lost where I was going with this. It was just what we were talking about just before I mentioned his name. Yeah, he like cited some study or something where the more yeah the more different viewpoints you have, you always come up with something better. And you know there have been numerous studies to this. And of course, I think the internet is showing us that that you know when you open up technology to the world, people come up with these cool ideas like Twitter and things that mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. have. It's funny because I. You know, I'd been hearing so much about Twitter, and I signed up like a year ago, and I was one of the Twitter quitters, I guess. <laughs> so I signed up, and then I never did anything with it. You know, I thought, well, I should check back in, and it's kind of you have to know what to look for. But I found like a Twitter about downtown LA, and all of a sudden I was learning like, oh, there's an extension of the subway I didn't even know about. It's going to go to a place that I'm always trying to get to, but I never want to drive there. And now I can take the subway there, and you know, just little things you can learn that you wouldn't have even thought to look for. Yeah, you know? very cool. So, yeah. Yeah, the internet's a mi- well. I say that yeah. with, with a caveat. Idea. <laughs> <laughs> Tesla's idea, this you know, yeah. interconnected network of information. I mean, that was definitely something he envisioned long before we had it. The so. exchange of ideas right around the world. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And yet we still shoot each other, don't we? Well, what's I, up, what's up with that, Lisa? You know, it's funny. I was thinking as I'm reading about the world affair. I think part of it is too is still the distance issue. It's the internet's brought us closer in mm-hmm. some ways, and yet, you know, I mean, how much do you read? Do you read an Iranian blog? Do you read an Afghani blog? You know, do you know what's going on in those countries until that's a part of our daily life? Like, if you go to Europe and you watch the mm-hmm. news there, 
they have news on every major country. I mean, not even just every major country. They have news about every That's continent. Right. Yeah. You find your Africa news and your Australian news and your, you know, your Asian news and Jap- Japan. And mm-hmm. here in America, all we see is what happens in America. I mean, well, most Americans have no idea how little of the world we know. Tune into Canadian news. It's similar to European yeah, news. Yeah, to Europe. I think yeah. every country except America <laughs> sees more of the world than we do. And mm-hmm. so as I was reading about the World's Fair, it's like maybe it's time to build a World's Fair in the like in the deep south of America <laughs> where people like never get out of their own state <laughs> and get them to meet the other cultures of the world. They're not going to fly over there. Let's bring it to them. <laughs> you know, maybe that's the way towards world peace. I don't you know, would that be fantastic? Because in the old days, when they built the Chicago World's Fair, mm-hmm. 500,000 people came, you know, from all over the planet to go to that fair, but like a good 300,000 Americans trooped in. And, you know, that was just huge at that point in time. I don't know what the total population was, but I think it was something like, they said like a third of the people in America actually got to the fair. I mean, because there was nothing else. You, know? you didn't have Disneyland, yeah. you know. You, you had to go to where where the event was happening. And, uh people went we're gonna have to wrap up now all righty but i want to thank you so much once again it's always a pleasure i can't believe two hours you know we just start and we go and (laughs) it's an incredible show once again folks you've been listening to lisa pease and we were speaking for the most part tonight about one fellow by the name of nikola tesla and we were looking at the different aspects of his life and all he has contributed to mankind or humankind I should say and that's one person folks you're one person you can do it yourself too there's nothing to say that you cannot there's everything to say that you can Lisa could you give us your blog so people can go check out your writing sure it's uh, the real history blog if you just search for that it'll you'll find it um, it's realhistoryarchives.blogspot.com and uh again the posts are just in um you know date order so <laughs> if you search there's a little search box on the blog you can search you know any word and, and find you know some blog entries on that topic uh i encourage people to poke around there's a lot of data there i still have my realhistoryarchives.com site too where you'll find a bunch of my writings um some of the many of the links are broken because <laughs> i've had that site for years and years and i never have time to update it but anything i, I wrote is still posted you. there <laughs> That's so I encourage great. people to browse through there as well. Okay. And I want to mention also that she has a book out with Jim DiEugenio. The book is called The Assassinations, and that's an incredible book. It's kind of the Bible on the assassinations, all four assassinations, the JFK assassination, the um, Malcolm, X. Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Bobby. And, uh, yeah, well, I, the only I, book that has all four, and I, I yeah. do think not only are all four related, but when you realize that, the left was essentially beheaded in that period of time. All the leaders, all That's the major right. leaders were That's taken out right. all at once. It's really hard to look at that as the act of a few lone nuts. Jim Douglas was on last week, and he was saying it was so obvious that every time somebody stepped up against war, right, they were gone. They were assassinated. That's right. And that's why I do think Obama's being so careful and yeah. why he was... And it's so similar to John Kennedy. When John Kennedy came into office, we were involved in this horrible war in Laos. That's and one right. of the first thing he did was bring that war to an end. 
and he was trying not to get us ramped up in Vietnam, but he also didn't want to pull us out before the election for fear that he wouldn't get reelected and really get us out. He really did plan to get us out after the election, but I fear Obama's doing the same thing. He's like, I'm going to end Iraq, as I said I would, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to beef up Afghanistan because I don't want to look like I'm anti-war and I'm soft on war, which is kind of John Kennedy's mistake. And so, uh, you know, I, I just hope Afghanistan isn't our next Vietnam because oh, I, I don't think gee. there's any way we can win. Oh, there. no, I it's agree with you. It's not our country. Yeah. It's not our culture. We don't understand the dynamics there. I want to bring all the women and kids from Afghanistan and bring them here to Canada. Oh, don't you wish. Oh, because yeah. then they could be educated and no problem. You want to wear uh, a cover? No problem at all. You don't want to wear one? No problem at all. Yeah, yeah, but they won't like the weather. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't tell them we're going to make a trip. Uh, every every winter it's going to be a trip. We're going to make a pilgrimage down to California, specifically oh, your go. place, <laughs> right in your place. There you go. I can house all one or two of them. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thank you again, Lisa. All righty, take care. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. You take okay. care. Thanks so much again. Sure. Bye-bye now. Well, folks, that was Lisa Pease. Always a great show when Lisa's on. She is so articulate and so knowledgeable. And she speaks the truth. And that's something that I really like about her. Whether you agree with her or not, she has her opinion. She sticks to it, and she's researched it. And she feels these are the facts, and there's a lot of integrity with what she says. Coming up, we're going to have a show on a book called The Gauntlet, which is written by a Canadian, and it deals with primarily with terrorism and covert ops. That's going to be a really interesting show. We're going to have Deborah Conway from JFK Lancer will be a guest, and Whitley Strieber will be here. Whitley Strieber, of course, horror writer in the United States. He's had many of his books turned into films. His groundbreaking work was called The Communion that was turned into a film. He had another one called Wolfen, and you've probably seen the one that came out a couple of years ago. It was called The Day After Tomorrow. It's the one with Dennis Quaid in it where New York freezes over. They're all Whitley Strieber books. That's going to be a great show. That night also, Cold Spot is coming back. Remember Cold Spot was up here for our Halloween special? The paranormal research team from Collingwood, just outside of Toronto, they're going to be here, and they're driving all the way up to join us for a live show. That's going to be great. So May is jam-packed. Also in June, we've got a whole series special on the Bobby Kennedy assassination. I'm getting ahead of myself now. In July, we've got a UFO special. We've got Michel Deschamps going to be here co-hosting the shows with me. As you know, he's the MUFON Northern Ontario director. He's going to be co-hosting the shows with me. We've got Stanton Friedman will be here. He's kind of the godfather of UFOs. We're going to be talking about Roswell, alien abductions, a great show out of Winnipeg called Mysterious with Chris Rutowski and Chris Reed. They will be on the telephone live. We'll be talking about various aspects of their show and various aspects about UFO. Chris Rutowski's written several books on UFOs. He's a Canadian authority. And another Canadian authority. We have a whole Canadian lineup for you in July. We're going to have Don Ledger on. We're going to be talking about Canada's Roswell. I bet you didn't even know we had a Roswell. Well, we do. And it is actually the only UFO sighting that has been documented fully by a Department of Defense. And that Department of Defense is Canada's. So it's right there in a government official UFO sighting. That's coming up in July, and we've just started booking 
for August. And August 12th, we're going to have another Canadian author on. We're going to be talking about werewolves. I'm really looking forward to that one. That's going to be great, uh, especially with a local author, because I love local authors and promoting local Canadian talent. So that's it for Night Fright. You've been listening to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland, and you're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM, Laurentian University in beautiful Sudbury. Wednesdays between 3 and 5 in the afternoon, 10 and midnight at night, and you're listening to Caper Radio, Cape Breton University in Sydney, Nova Scotia beautiful Sydney, Nova Scotia, Wednesdays from 3.30 in the afternoon to 5.30 in the evening, CILU, Lakehead University, 102.7 FM, rockin' Thunder Bay, Sunday night at midnight, and CJMQ, 88.9 FM, the voice of the townships, Sherbrooke, Quebec, Saturday nights from 9 to 11, CJUM, 101.5 FM, University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. Sound FM 100.3 FM, University of Waterloo, Waterloo, Ontario. Sunday night, Monday morning, three shows back-to-back, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. I'm Brent Holland for Night Fright. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Night Fright, and your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. (laughs) 